Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, please do consider supporting the bookshop by making a purchase from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com. There, you'll be able to find the titles discussed on today's episode, themed book boxes, our popular year of reading subscription, as well as gifts and merchandise, including our brand new Shakespeare and Company sweatshirt. All books come inked with our famous bookshop stamp and can be shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You might also consider joining Friends of Shakespeare and Company, a membership programme we created to support the bookshop's activities during a difficult 2021. The first instalment is now available for members and features exclusive contributions from Natalie Portman, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair and George Saunders. Visit friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com to find out more. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Today's guests are responsible for two of the most electrifying readings we've had in the bookshop in recent years, and now for two of the most explosively creative, formally outrageous, and I mean this as the highest praise, completely bonkers novels it's been my privilege to read these past months. Jenny Fagan's Luck and Booth is a spiralling tale of a block of flats in Edinburgh, told over a century and packed with devils, witches, swingers, gangsters and spies. It's a seductive mix of the realism and otherworldliness with which Jenny made her name since she stunned the literary world in 2013 with her debut, The Panopticon. It's a mix perhaps best summed up in Luck and Booth when one character turns to another and says, if you block the sink with ectoplasm one more time, I'm fucking leaving you. The author of several extraordinary poetry collections and the deeply moving memoir Springfield Road, in her first novel, Selina Godden goes toe to toe with the Grim Reaper, lifting his shroud to reveal, well, that there's no him to speak of, for he is actually a she and she is the charming, lippy and pugnacious Mrs. Death. Although when we meet Mrs. Death, we find her fed up with her work and doubtful about her vocation, as well as quite literally work to the bone. She has taken to unburdening herself to Wolf Williford, a Londoner who already had enough problems of his own before he was called upon to transcribe the thoughts of this horsewoman of the apocalypse. Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death is a poetic meditation on our inevitable demise, as one might expect, but also teaches readers a lot about its counterpart, celebrating and affirming that complex, messy, beautiful thing we call life. Jenny, Selena, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Great to have you with us. I wish uh, you were actually in the store, but, um, you know, the times, uh, you know, we, we, we do what we can with the uh, the situation we find ourselves in. Um, our listeners would be used to um, obviously hearing an, an audience applaud at this moment. Um, but since we have no audience and just to give them a sense of place, would you um, let us know where you are, um, both you know, your surroundings, the room that you're in, and also um, more broadly, where, where, where in the world you find yourself. Perhaps, um, Jenny, if you can kick us off. I am in Edinburgh. I am in my writing bed. I've built a bed to write in, which is really just ridiculous. It's um, it's on stilts so that I can see the views because I'm really small. And um, I always had tiny flats and I've always written in bed and now I've got a study I've had to put a bed in it so I can keep writing so I'm, I'm in my writing bed in Edinburgh looking at the view I can see uh, the Firth of Forth I can see the water down there and ships so it's and it's a nice day it was snowing yesterday snowing in spring in Scotland and uh, wow. today the sun is shining and was, was it uh, just just a couple of things to clarify so this is a bed specifically for writing it's a it's mm, yeah shoes that's the top of my fairy tale ridiculous <laughs> gorgeous writing bed yeah i just Wonderful. um i wrote in bed for so long it turns out for doing novels i need to be 
in bed to work. So, so that's where I am. <laughs> and, and was it from this bed that you wrote Luck and Booth? Uh, I edited the end of Luck and Booth in here. So the bed is a, a recent acquisition. I just wrote it in my normal bed before this. Okay. <laughs> You'll have to report back in a little while about whether the kind of the, the mojo of the two beds affects the yes, definitely. writing process. Each, each bit, it's got its own identity. It does. It does. And uh, yeah. Selena, um, well, I can only assume you're in some sort of theatre. Is that is that right? Yeah, this is the theatre that I've made in the corner of my living room. Um, so there's the microphone and then there's like a black backdrop. I'm sitting on a chair. Um, and then there's bunting with the wolf and the rabbit, which are the the two motifs for the book, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. And um, because I'm so used to performing and so used to, you know, having that sort of, I needed to make a space that wasn't my writing space um, to, so that I could somehow dislocate myself from the place where the magic happens to sort of some sort of performing area. Um, but <laughs> So that's where we are. And I'm in my house, which is in... Um, East London um, in in Stratford and, and very close to the places uh, that are mentioned in the book uh, where I based a lot of the writing. Yeah. Mm. So that's interesting. So you're both uh, in the cities that uh, the novels take place and you both wrote those novels in those cities as well. Yes, um, I, I, I wrote it over several years, um, so mm -hmm. quite a lot of it um, was composed on the lips, which is something I didn't realise was a thing, but is a it is a thing. So a lot of this book, you probably might feel that in the rhythm of the writing, a lot of it was written on foot and talking into my phone to try and become Mrs. Death yeah. to sound wise wow. and... Um, and then That's some of the writing was done in Ireland in the same way, just recording and then going home and typing up what I'd said and then growing from there. Mm. Um, I haven't written like that mm. before. I don't know why it started like that. It was just how it began. Yeah. That's interesting. So the, uh, because obviously you're known um, as a poet as well, and particularly for, as I mentioned in the introduction, for the kind of, um, the the power of your performances, and so 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 the poetry that you obviously you perform aloud that's not written on the lips. That's generally written on the page, and the novel, which is generally read on the page, was actually composed on the lips. That's so true. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, that is so true. I um, that's kind of how the book began. I think the the first time I met Mrs. Death, or the first time that I wrote her or her was I was walking through. I was walking through Whitechapel down along Brick Lane um, and I heard this voice. Um, I know a lot of dead people now. I know a lot of dead people now. And it was a voice that isn't my usual n internal dialogue, internal narrator, if you like. And so mm -hmm. that's where it started. And I walked like for hours just down through East London, typing it and recording it into my phone. And that, that um, section ends up being um, the way that Wolf meets Mrs. Death. Um, and it ends up being that chapter, I know a lot of dead people now. And that's where the book started sort of springing from. Um, yeah, so the, I think because it started like that, I started to think the only way I could conjure her was by walking and talking down in my voice like that. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I was going to bring up, actually, because Jenny, of course, you're a poet as well. Um, and both of your books are quite sort of um, structurally uh, ambitious and sort of, you know, they... Uh, quite sort of uh, unusual from a point of view of a novel. Like they don't 
neither follows particularly the sort of the the standard narrative arc uh, one might expect from a from a lot of novels. Now, Jenny, last time you were in Paris, we talked about this quite a lot. This was, I think, you were on the point of finishing Luck and Booth, or you just finished it, and we had quite a sort of quite a quite a laugh about the kind of the the sort of the 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 extravagance of the structure and how it sort of it took a lot to sort of particularly when trying to explain it before readers got to it how it was quite sort of difficult to actually describe to editors or whoever quite what the book was doing but i'm curious was your the fact that you work in the poetic form as well as in writing fiction and of course poetry perhaps has a certain it can be more sort of fluid structurally than than novels. Did that feed into the the sort of the the conception and the and the writing of Luck and Booth? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I love Mrs. Death, and um, I've loved spending time with Mrs. Death. I love Luck and, and Booth and, and Wolf. I just think, I mean, Death's something I've always thought of a lot anyway. But I just think the the encapsulation of her and and the way that she morphs throughout is so beautiful. And for me, it makes complete sense hearing you say that you you wrote it whilst whilst talking in the way that you would write poetry because I have a theory that you know, a great novel is actually just a bigger poem. Um, to me, that's what it is. You know, I, I write poems and they're shorter and I write novels and they're kind of longer poems. They're different. They have a different identity, but there's something at the core of of the novels I I love that's the same. And yeah, I mean, the structure of, of Luck and Booth, I don't know how you found it, Selena, when you were describing the, the book to people when you were writing it. I remember talking to you in earlier drafts and you saying, I don't have that thing to say yet that we eventually you know develop on the book is this and um I would describe what I was doing with Luck and Booth and people like my publisher would be like okay <laughs> and uh, other writers would be like all right and uh, and I would go away for another year and another couple of years and draw it out on my wall and just think what the fuck am I doing this is really ridiculous um but much like a poem has that bite of truth I just had to keep going with absolutely no sense really if I would get to the end of it or if it would be any good. And and I write everything like that, basically. And um, the structure at one point mm. had three parts and each part had three decades. Each decade was revisited three times and each chapter was 3,333 words long based on the Wiccan principle of wow. three. And... Um, that was a, a, an active insanity. Why do you do that to yourself? <laughs> I know, I know. And, uh, and my, my editor in London was like, kind of mind-blowing. But for translation purposes and lots of other things, A, it would be really difficult. But B, the point of it was sort of to give the novel a corset. You know, it needed a corset to, to gain shape and to, to gain momentum and to gain speed. And because I was traveling over a hundred years, I needed to find a way to sort of, you know, create a sort of train for that journey essentially. And then by that point I didn't need the corset. I could take it off and the shape was there and I needed to do that so it could breathe. And so it could, you know, fully kind of become itself. Um, but yeah, it, it felt like an act of madness for the entire time. And I love the risks that you take in Mrs. Death. I love that I feel like I'm in a, an album sometimes and I feel like I'm in a poem sometimes and I feel like I'm in a play sometimes. Mm. And they're all a novel. And, you know, the greatest thing about novels for me is the, the, the ability to make new, you know. Um, I always think it's exciting when people do that. It's interesting that um, you give us the image of kind of, of a corset because yeah, it's almost like, like you... You required some sort of 
some sort of containment in order to was it to sort of to stop yourself kind of your pot kind of overflowing in a way to sort of give yeah. yourself some sort of Absolutely. sort of structure to this energy that you're trying to and channel to hold mm. it up to kind of pull it in and say you know i'm very indulgent in early drafts they tend to be kind of twice as long and you know i can i can go on and on and on you know forever on riffing about you know a daffodil and so i need to find ways to as a novelist to be less poetic i guess mm. um and to be less indulgent in that I was really tough on that. It was that kind of thing of, I used to play in punk bands and it was like, what's the point of playing a song that's longer than three minutes? You know, if I see a really big novel, I'm like, that better be a fucking great sound. Stop sorry. That better be a great novel. <laughs> Otherwise, do you know what I mean? Did they really need that extra two to 300 pages or were they just being indulgent? You know? Um, so some of those ethics were behind the approach for something mm. that was mm. a bit of a kind of, it felt like ambition over reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, one one of the one of the things I found particularly sort of a charming about reading Mrs. Death actually was the the sense, Selena, that you sort of and again maybe this is as you're coming at it as a as a poet. It's a sort of I could imagine sort of a lot of novelists might have sort of you know even if they had had the ideas, it's sort of the way Jenny just described it. Sort of like there's there's poetry mixed in there. There's kind of you know the the structure you, you you hop about in time you hop about in voice hmm. um without kind of holding the reader's hand sort of too much without sort of over explaining yourself was it part of the kind of the liberty you feel as a as a poet and perhaps even as somebody who sort of ca- came through the spoken word scene as well to sort of that you didn't have to sort of um abide by the the conventions that perhaps more sort of traditional novelists might might feel constrained? Well, there's so many answers to that. Um, Okay, so the first thing is, uh, I really love what you said, Jenny, this kind of idea of having a corset to make a shape um, and this idea of, 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 of that. My main thing really was uh, when I was writing this I didn't have an agent I didn't have a publishing deal so I was very much this was the the work I was making in between everything else in between working on The Good Immigrant working on Pessimism is for Lightweights the Livewire album this was like the thing that no one knew I was making and because of that there's this delicious freedom because I wasn't even sure I was going to let anyone read it not really I wasn't really that you know and so there was a lot of playfulness going on Um, Mm. and the and there's and then the other the only massive rule I had is that it has to be a short book. I had so much I want to say. There are so many deaths I wanted to include, so much mourning, so much celebration that I wanted to include, so many like the great life of Nina Simone for one. She was really yeah. loud. I really wanted more of Nina yes. in there. Um, and so to so to sort of compensate for that, I played with form quite a bit. So some mm-hmm. pieces that are pieces of from the newspaper were then turned into poems and then some things that started as long essays were then turned into prose or turned into um, diary entries. So I was constantly swapping how they originally came to me and turning them into a different sort of form. It occurred to me that people, when they look at something on a page and their brain tells them it's a poem, that they might breathe slowly and take it in more slowly so, for mm. example, with the Sarah Reed chapter, that started as a whole prose thing, and then I shrank it yeah. and shrank it and shrank it to just the bare knuckles because I wanted people to breathe and to say her name and to feel that, um, and 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 also sort of you know, the, the kind of idea that we've that's how our brains are, isn't it? When we see writing, we take it in differently 
as we're told what it is, if it's a letter or if it's a diary. So I was, yeah, very playful with that and playing with the reader and what you expect a poem to feel like or what you expect a news mm. item to feel like. Mm. Um, the Australian chapter, again, is a newspaper article chopped into a poem and then turned into a sort of pub rant, the fluent swearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea, of, <laughs> the idea of sort of stories changing as they go through filters. Because we do that when we've got our phone in our hand, we jump from an article, very serious article, to a very funny meme, to a poem, to a song lyric, to a tweet, to a we're constantly mm. switching form. Nowadays, uh, particularly in lockdown, where everything's coming in on our phones and on the internet, so there's there's that. Imagining Mrs. Death getting people's last confessions or people's last words or people's last cries, and how would that sound? It probably wouldn't all be prose. It might be a poem, or it might be a song, or it might be a lament, or a or you know. And that, so I was trying to capture that as well. Um, I like. Yeah. That. I can really hear that when you say that. I can really hear the. Um just that breath slowing down. And especially towards mm-hmm. the end when you have the, the sections of poems, you know, April 23rd, you know, all, all, all towards the end. And I thought April 23rd was so beautiful. And um, it was almost like it slowed down and it, it said, I forgive you, life. I, I forgive you. And I remember hearing somebody saying that they'd, they'd overheard a conversation one day with a couple of elderly people sitting on a bench and they'd had this conversation about all the difficult things in life and one of them had said, but in the end, I forgave it. I forgive it. And there was something so beautiful about going through all those different journeys with death and, you know, with these huge things like Grimfell and, and all these events that have happened that are as real as real can be and having this very gentle moment towards the end where it does slow down and, and you're saying that with the poem and the breath, it completely makes sense. But it also felt quite punk to me, that sort of thing of changing pace, that sort of thing of somebody's riffing mm. in one way and then yeah. it, it goes, you know, something else kicks in. And um, I have really strange notes for, for books that I'm going to write. So I have a note for a book that says, try and write a book like Miles Davis. Uh, and I, I don't know what I mean, but I do know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like that thing that's just the utter joy of playing the utter joy of just I'm in a dark club and I'm doing it you know um yeah Mm. you you don't know what you mean by it but you will know when you've done it yeah 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 Yeah. Uh, was was that also why, Selena, that kind of punk thing why you wanted to um keep the book short well the answer to this that I've been giving, and I think it, and it's going to, it's quite cheesy, but I feel like this, the subject is going to be quite heavy in your head. It's going to be quite heavy in your heart. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to make it heavy in your bag. So, <laughs> so it's not heavy yeah. to carry in your bag. So I, I cut and cut and cut so much out. Um, and to, I think I can't remember now. I think it, I think it was 123 pages. It had to be or something, but I think mm-hmm. I broke that rule, but yeah, but yeah, yeah keeping it short. <laughs> That's fascinating. So 123 pages. Jenny, you just you told us earlier about the kind of the rule of three, perhaps mm. we might call it about this sort of, you know, 3,333 words, yeah. um, which kind of brings me on to the next thing I wanted to talk about, because it, it makes me think there might be some sort of numerology at play here. Mm. Um, I mean, I know you sort of you, you, you both sort of spoken about it as if it was some sort of way of giving yourself constraint, but there seems to be a certain sort of power connected to the the number as well or some sort of significance because these are two books which acknowledge and accept and celebrate the 
I mean, I, I don't know what would be the correct word, the supernatural, the preternatural. I'm not, I'm not sure maybe you will have like specific uh, descriptions of, of what, what you're doing with it. But that's, um, is, is it, for, in both of those respects, was there a sort of a, a significance to these these numbers kind of beyond the constraint they they gave you and more to do with perhaps superstition and i don't mean that in a sort of uh, a sort of a negative <laughs> when sense. you said that, when you said that i was like I, felt like I was in the room <laughs> i completely felt someone standing there oh my goodness sorry jenny you answer this one i'm too scared <laughs> I, I mean, certainly when I was reading Mrs. Death as well, like I do get that feeling of um, working with the unconscious. It's something, it's mm-hmm. something that I just do every time I write a novel. I think there's a part of our, our, our brain that's cleverer than our daily day brain. You know, my day to day brain's like, oh, I have to get up, oh, I have to breathe. You know, all the different things we have to do in the day. But there's a part of the the unconscious that is constantly collecting all the stuff that's too difficult for us to deal with, and when we uh, write novels, I think that's sometimes the exact place that we're going to. And certainly um, looking at the subject of grief, looking at the subject of bereavement, looking at the unusualness of here's this person I love, here's their voice, where did their voice go? I know they've gone, but where's their voice? I can't hear them. I'm still listening. Ten years later, I'm still listening. Mm. And uh, it's something that, Mm-hmm. Selena, you do beautifully in Mrs. Death, you know, in- including, you know, having that those six pages at the end where people can bring their own uh, their own people to those pages and almost create a kind of an act of remembrance and an act of joy, but also an act of conversation. And I think that's where certainly I, I, I struggle with the other side. I struggle with this big secret silent universe that has so little to say to us about why we're actually here. And so there is definitely an act of um, not necessarily numerology, but there there was a number that came for this book and for this one in particular, for me it was three. But I was definitely channeling, you know, I feel like the living and the dead in Edinburgh are always very close. We're, we're never, like London, you know, you walk down East End to London and they're just walking alongside each other. You know, you can see it, you can sit down in a pub, you can sit down in you know most of your friends flats and you can feel that that's just part of it and i like that you know we're we're all checking in from three very old cities you've got paris london and and edinburgh and and each have extraordinary histories Mm. you know and i feel like um there's a tapping into you know tapping into that vein you know you're walking around brick lane tapping into something and walking around these streets in edinburgh and i'm doing the same thing and Mm. i look I love visiting Shakespeare and Company because I feel it very strongly when I'm there. Yeah, mm. I think um, with with uh, when I was writing this, there was a lot of dream work going on, a lot of waking up at four in the morning, a lot of these um, a lot of these chapters were very real, very vivid dreams. Tilly Tuppence was so real to me that mm. I, I googled her. I was looking. I was like, who is no. where was. Where's, who was Tilly? I, she felt very real to me. I feel really sad about Tilly Tuppence. And Martha and Martha were a dream, a very vivid, real dream. It felt like past live dreams. Like they were so very in me and so true. Um, and the Red Tower as well, which I've Googled, and there is no Red Tower. It's, it's completely, but it fe- I can see it even now talking to you now. 
Um, so I think that that was that was a lot. There was a lot of dream work going on in there, and this and Wolf is very much between worlds here, not here, dead, alive, on the edge of life, and and kind of so this that kind of half you know tr- that very trippy feel to that character kind of lent itself to that. Um, but there's lots of number twenty threes in the in the book. You know, the number number twenty three. You'll notice pops up quite a bit. I'm quite um, mm-hmm. I'm quite yeah, big. But I think that's my favourite number for many many reasons. Number twenty three. Mm. So I'm written from one of the early chapters in Lucky Booth when the Devil's Daughter has arrived in Edinburgh. She has rode here in a coffin that her father, the Devil, built for her, and uh, she's marched up into the city and she's about to take a job working for the Minister of Culture, Mr. Udnam, in a 10-storey tenement building, old tenement building, uh, called Luckenburg Coast. The high street is cobbled and it slopes up. There's wooden doors and small blown glass windows or fancier sash panes with wooden shutters. A motor car turns right onto Coburn Street. The spunk hawker stacks his tinder. Between the well-dressed and moneyed, there are glimpses of the hungry and hunted. A big church has a beggar sat on its steps with his ratty wee dug. A young man smiles. He wants to defile me, an urge to let him right here in the street. Who can save me? My father is the devil. Our kind are not holy. I must perfectly hide the sharp tip of my horns. Wood smoke spirals out of tenement chimneys and the reek permeates everything. Pretty rooftops are tiled like dragon skin. Just as I am about to step forward, a black mass flows onto North Bridge. Along the high street, news signs declare World Missionary Conference. 1,200 men of God flock toward me. They stride in tens, twenties, hundreds. I knew God would have a message for me but I did not know he would be so direct. I spit, saliva still tinged pink. I look at it there in the cobbles, just a tinge of blood, only seen by me. Everywhere there are black suits and motion. The men press close as they go around me, cleric collars, smooth hair, clean skin, moustache or beard, shiny shoes. They pass like crooked ships on a grey sea. A young minister's eyes slide over my body with thoughts as impure as any. I know what lays in his trousers, damp and feeble as a mouse. That thing will only stand on end for cruelty. Heat on my temples, I could easily stake him. Shoes click on the cobbles. One by one, they disappear into the city chambers up ahead and the speech crier calls out, Evil walks among us. I step forward. The spires at St Giles Cathedral rise up. Gargoyles crane their necks out bug-eyed to stare. Edinburgh seduces with her ancient buildings. She pours alcohol or food down the throats of anyone passing, dangles her trinkets, leaves pockets bare. She's a pickpocket, the best kind of thief, one you will think of most fondly. There is a cage in Maha. Made of bone, 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 I must appear not to see, not to know. Rub my foot against my leg and check the bit of paper again. 
The drawing has the entrance to number 10 Luckenbooth close clearly marked, but I am told nobody can ever find it. Ignore the cathedral and the cobbled heart. I walk by the entry to the close three times before I take a few steps back, turn down into a shady, narrow street. The sounds of the city quiet him. A man dressed smartly appears and he glares at me. I have to press back against the cold wall to let him pass. He is a reptile. Stones for eyes, scoots all over his skin, slick, armoured, a tail to flick left to right. Over a million years, reptiles have perfected their ability to detect and exploit weakness. It's almost admirable. Sometimes they seek easy prey. Other times they enjoy a fight. They sit in courtrooms, deal out judgment, turn up to football games. They turn a red leather barber's chair and welcome your child with a lollipop and a wide reptilian smile. They act in theatres, teach in schools. They hold keys to the police station. They bake your wedding cake, bow on stage as the curtain falls. They write poems. They take up a good cause. They save things loudly. They are careful to be seen to be doing things that are nothing at all to do with murder. They are charming. They are liked. It is important to make sure others owe them. Reptiles lay in bed reading. They get a cold. They take two sugars in their tea. They are concerned for you. They bring a gift. They are often top of the pile. Who would be a top predator and let a nicer person pass? The more talented... The greater thinker, no, no, no. That's not how it works. I am not talking about lizards. This has nothing to do with geckos. I have no issue with chameleons. It has no relevance to turtles. The reptiles I describe are crocodiles. God must have mercy on you if you lay down in your bed each night with a crocodile. If you marry one, have its baby and look into tiny baby crocodile eyes. The crocodile will suckle its victim at night. Each morning they will wake with disdain and a wide-toothed smile. They open their muscular arms only a little. Through evolution they have learned how to make you want them. Once you step into want, they begin to squeeze you tightly. Grin wide crocodile grins as they expel air from your lungs, keeping eye contact all the while. An ancient dance. Spin, spin, spin. Descend to the depths. There it is, the deepest ocean floor with a forest of seaweed to filter out the light. Your face will be unbelieving at the end of a death row ride. When your body is limp and your expression incredulous, they will stash you. Sometimes they will swim back down. Sunlight halo behind them. It won't be to rescue you or apologize. It will be to find your corpse and take another good, long, leisurely bite. Whilst you'd like to think you were something unique to them, what you find as you turn around is millions of other women and children, mostly, all stashed in an identical watery grave. What I must do is sew my real eyes shut and look out with a pretty blue set painted on. This is it. Number 10, Luckenbooth Clubs. It's um, it's it was interesting earlier, Selena, when you said that um, 
you went to Google Tilly Tuppence, and I, I admit, actually, I did the, I did the same thing. <laughs> um, and in fact, there were the moments in, in both in both of your books because there is this kind of blend of uh, it is a very good name. Yeah, <laughs> there there is this this kind of blend of the real, you know, the real, so to speak, and the sort of fictional characters. So, um, I mean, you made uh, reference earlier to some of the people you wanted to to include in your book. And, and likewise, Jenny, you have several chapters uh, with, you know, older friend of the shop, uh, William Burroughs, um, sort of uh, taking one of the, the voices. And I, I'd be curious to hear both of you speak a little bit about the sort of the integration of uh yeah sort of real historical characters uh into your book what what that why that you felt that was necessary rather than just sort of having the be works of kind of complete invention and then also what sort of obligation if any you feel to the real characters compared to the the characters that you you invented um jenny maybe we can begin with with you and with yeah bill burrows yeah, so I've I moved to Edinburgh when I was a really little girl, and I lived all around, you know, the outside of Edinburgh. And I would I'd come in through the bus and look up at the big tenement flats, looking to sit in a tenement over nine floors over nearly a hundred years. And you would look up at the big tenements and be like, "Wow, that just looks extraordinary." And and then I lived in tenements when I was older, some really, really, really creepy old tenements. So I've been gathering stories about Edinburgh or from people in Edinburgh all my life. You know, some lady at a bus stop, people in pubs at five o'clock in the morning, you know, some, you know, uh, there, was, there was a homeless person in Edinburgh who uh, he, he'd been sleeping rough outside for a long time. We have quite a lot of long-term homeless communities here as well as shorter-term homeless communities. And he used to feed the birds. And I, I worked in um, the, the burger place at the train station when I was 15. I was living in a kid's home working in the train station cleaning the, the tables and taking the, the bins out and he used to come in at five o'clock in the morning for a cup of tea and the guy that I was working with didn't want to serve him because he was horrible the guy I was working with was horrible so I used to make him a cup of tea and send him on his way and then one day uh, two of the men that would come in early in the morning I called them the father and the son they used to come in to get heat because it was you know Edinburgh's freezing in the winter and they told me that he'd come here as a young man. He'd been um, the manager of the Balmoral Hotel. He'd been just really slick. You know, he'd been this kind of young man about town. And one day he'd walked out of the Balmoral Hotel, biggest hotel in town, and said, I'm not doing it anymore. And he, you know, went on another path in life. So there was lots of people who were personal to me that I'd seen around or that had been personal to my journey in one way or another that I thought I have to have that builder that building's got to be in there if I'm trying to write a great Edinburgh novel I can't miss that building Mm -hmm. and Burroughs was here in 1962 for the International Writers Conference uh, which was a really famous writers conference at the book festival where loads of writers who hadn't met each other all got together for the first time and had huge fights and really went toe-to-toe and loads of different things. And people were standing <laughs> up, you know, claiming these wild, great things. You know, I'm going to chop my hair off and blah, blah, blah. Apparently, Trocky was asked um, what his inspiration for literature was. And he said sodomy. And McDermott nearly spat his teeth out. And all these different <laughs> things happened. But I just loved thinking about Burroughs being here. You know, there was, there's always been a, a, a strong drug culture in Edinburgh. Um you know, it was very dominant, certainly in the 80s, we were the HIV capital of Europe and because of our, our drug 
our drug uh, drug use and, and those different things. So I just I understood why he would want to hang on a little bit and have some you know good quality gear and walk these old streets. And uh, I always loved Burroughs' voice. You know, I could listen to Burroughs read the back of a cornflakes packet mm-hmm. and it would just sound great. But he's a very conflicted figure. You know, he you know he he killed his wife, Joan Burroughs, who would have been one of the most interesting beat poets that was that was out there. So I don't know, but I was thinking about Burroughs' relationship to language as a virus, and I have a feeling about of language as a mm. structure that is used to structure the world that is used to order the world and the people in it. We use language for everything. We use it to create legislation. We use it to divide. We use it to conquer. We use it to oppress. We use it to create legislations. We use it to penalize. We use it to keep people down. We use it to elevate other people. Everything comes from this little array of letters that we create into words that becomes language. So Burroughs was really there because I was having a conversation with him about language as a virus and myself. I was having a conversation about language as a structure and Luck and Booth as a structure that lots of different people live within. And all of these individuals are very directly impacted on by the wider structures in one way or another. So he was there more for that reason than any other. But I did things like he's there's a bit where he eats um, a white pudding supper, which is like a kind of oatmeal type thing you get in the fish and chip shop. And that amused me endlessly. It's like if I'm going to have someday in Luckin Booth eat a white pudding supper, well, I'm going to make it burrows because why not? Uh, and as to, kind of, <laughs> as, as to, as to living in, in a, you know, not living people, there was, uh, for example, Dora Noyce's in the, um, there's a big seance in the 1950s floor and Dora Noyce attends the seance. She's the friends of Agnes, who's the medium. And um, they talk about the the last woman who was tried under the UK witchcraft laws, who was a woman from Edinburgh who lived in Craig Miller, uh, who was um, tried under Winston Churchill. Um, but Dora Noyce herself was had a brothel in Edinburgh, a very famous brothel in Danube Street is a very very posh part of town 17 Danube Street was a, a, a notorious brothel for a long time for being very wealthy establishment in a way and Dora Noyce wore a fur coat and she appeared like a very conservative lady and um, apparently she used to describe her establishment as a, a YMCA with benefits and when you went to see a girl at her establishment you didn't just go straight to, to a room with them you sat and you had um, tea and, uh, and sandwiches because, you know, that's the nice thing to do. And so Dora Noyce was a huge figure in Edinburgh for a long time. I had to have a nod to her in there. Um, there are lots of different buildings, uh, venues, and characters who have their little nods, because I wanted Luck and Booth to be a living artefact. I want you to be able to sit in the pub. Mm-hmm. I want you to go to 17 Danube. I want you to go to any of these places and feel the way I do, that this is a living piece of work and that the fictional world that's in it is just as real as the non-fictional world and somehow they they collided to, mm. to strengthen each other. Mm. One of the, um, maybe maybe uh, I'm wrong about this, so, so correct me if so, but in, in the borough section, one that, thing that I wondered, it was a little nod, there was a kind of a very sort of brief reference to uh, Jim, 
um, connected to the International Writers Conference. And I was just curious whether that was a reference to Jim Haynes, um, who I know you knew well and we knew well at the bookshop and who passed away towards the end of last year. Like a towering figure in Edinburgh culture, towering figure in Parisian culture. And and, and sometimes it's nice to put nods in that aren't, you know, unless you know that that particular scene, you might not get it and it doesn't matter. But yeah, Jim Haynes was hugely important. And, you know, he started up the... He was one of the people who started up the Traverse Theatre and the, you know, the International Festival in Edinburgh. He was so active in so many things, and he was just such a gem. He was so lovely. Whenever I used to see him at the big festival, it just be recently. You see him kind of coming in every year, a tiny bit older, and just as brilliant every time. Um, so yeah, they were personal, tiny little nods for me for things that that were important. There's three strip bars in Edinburgh that are in it that we call the pubic triangle because they're in a triangle. And, and so that's the, you know, my, my editor was like, what? And I was just like, well, it's just, it's just an Edinburgh thing. It is what it is, you know. And years ago, I read uh, the Yucubian building by Ala Alsoni when I was staying in Egypt. And I loved it because um, I was able to find out lots of things about Egypt that I wouldn't have found out from the tourist board. And so I could walk around the streets going, oh, look, that goes on over there. These are the, these are the stories that you're not hearing publicly. And uh, and that's the the Edinburgh I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about the Edinburgh that the the tourist board doesn't sell. You know, there's two cities in this city, mm. and um, one of them is more interesting to me. <laughs> and Selena, likewise, the um, the I had the impression that the uh, I mean. This may be it's a sort of a, an obvious thing to say in a way because nothing in the composition of a of a book is particularly random. But there seems to be a very sort of um, deliberate choice, not only to the uh, the historical figures you reference, but also the kind of historical events that you um, either directly allude to or um, can we directly allude to something? Either you directly <laughs> mention or you allude to. Um, you know, things like uh, Grenfell, things like the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, things like um, like the the, for example, the National Health Service as a as an institution. There seem to be, as I say, like this real sort of um, I don't know, a sort of a deliberateness and a sort of desire to 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 give representation, I guess, to certain to certain voices and certain events. Well, yeah, I mean the the book. Um, the book very much sort of, I sort of started it around kind of 2012, 2013, like I said, working on it between other projects, collecting deaths and collecting stories, more to the point, collecting stories of courage or stories of, of, of justice or seeking justice. Um, so a lot of those, those threads and those things was, were stories I was following and things that were happening in the news at the time of writing. Um, it's been so strange, I must say, to publish this during um, the coronavirus pandemic, when really this is about the pandemic that was already going on, um, the, mm-hmm. the pandemic of toxic masculinity and of women, um, women's lives being destroyed and, um, and you know, the, the rise in domestic violence, the, the disappearing, vanishing unmourned uh, bodies, people um, that, you know, and, and sorry, but trying to work out why some people get a hashtag and some people don't there just just put it like that mm. um and this is something very much that i think is in your book jenny too this kind of idea of looking for the talking about justice um and seeking that 
Um, so I, I couldn't write this book for a pandemic I didn't see coming, but I did write it during a pandemic that I felt we were already in um, mm-hmm. with the, the, the things that were going on with Extinction Rebellion and with Black Lives Matter um, and Say Her Name and Enough is Enough and Time's Out, Time's Up and all those other uh, hashtags. A lot of this was written during, uh, a lot of this book was written during protest, the Women's March. Um, and so I was listening and listening to people talking and, and, and learning, listening and learning. And, and a lot of that went, that learning and those arguments and went into the book. Um, this book isn't on purpose supposed to be a woke book. It's not supposed to be. It's, mm-hmm. I'm just writing from the point of view of Wolf, who is troubled and struggling with mental health issues, um, who is biracial and 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 bisexual and 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 struggling with identity um, on on so many levels. Um, an echo, perhaps, to the teenager I was and also a handshake and, a, and an arm round the shoulder of some of the young writers and young poets that I hang out with now, 19, 20, 21 year olds who are trying to find out what this living is all about. Um, I'm not saying I figured it out yet, but, um, but this is, this, mm-hmm. this book was definitely about that journey. Um, how death teaches you to live, how death can teach you how to live better is perhaps a better way to mm-hmm. put that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm so, I, I'm sorry when I see um, reviews where people say, "Oh, she's just writing woke things," because I, I just find because if you, it, this is just who I am and this is how I see the mm-hmm. world, um, and and there is all this injustice. Um, I don't think that's being woke. I think that's being being alive and noticing what's going yeah. on outside the window right now. What if I made Mrs. Death up? Is Mrs. Death real? Where are you when I need you, Mrs. Death? I jump on the bus heading eastbound. It is dead quiet and empty upstairs. I sit down and lean to let my forehead touch the glass and I watch the city from above. The window pane is cool. There is frost and snow on the dome of the roof of Madame Tussauds and I exhale slowly and empty my lungs and my breath fogs up the window and then I suddenly cry. And once they start, the tears won't stop. Hot tears on my cold cheeks and the cool glass. There is a hurt and a pain in my chest. I feel broken and I don't know what time or day it is, and I don't know where I am. I am guessing it is time for me to go mental in Doolally Town. The doctor has arranged to send me for further evaluation. She thinks I'm developing bipolar. I looked it up, and I found out that bipolar and hormone imbalance and PMT, and menopause, and being an empath, and being a human who gives a flying shit, all share similar symptoms. Mood swings, hypersensitivity, restlessness, insomnia, extreme highs and extreme lows, suicidal thoughts, restlessness, catastrophizing, and crying alone on buses. The world is in chaos. The earth is in climate emergency. There has been another shooting. This time, a racist, white supremacist, Islamophobe, burst into a mosque, all guns blazing. 
We should all be crying on buses. What is wrong with everyone? I am not catastrophizing. This is a fucking catastrophe. That doctor thinks I might be bipolar. And every time I think about that word, bipolar, I start crying again. Look at me. That's me. Biracial, bisexual, bigender, and bipolar. That's my labels and my boxes. That's me. I'm the one you can see all alone crying upstairs on the bus. I am crying because I'm afraid. I'm crying because this is probably the saddest and loneliest bus ride ever. I'm crying because maybe I am a bit mad. And maybe I am crying because you aren't crying with me right now. Because you just aren't mad enough. In in my notes, I was writing about about both of your books, like they, that they were sort of that they struck me as kind of very sort of resolutely political books. But I was a little bit reluctant to say to express it like that because I didn't want sort of people who had not already uh, read your novels to kind of think almost like you just said, Selena, that they're going to be kind of whacked over the head with some sort of um, sort of political diatribe about you know one thing or another, or yeah, that sort of as you say, like a kind of. A sort of overtly woke book or something like that, yeah. and yet one of the things that I I loved about both of these books is the fact that there is, I mean, they are um, at their heart, it strikes me, sort of deeply feminist books. I mean, the sort of obviously, you know, in, in the very, you know, in, in its very concept, your book, Selena, is sort of like taking, you know, taking a, a concept with uh, a character which has always been presented as you know, somehow both just a skeleton, but also broadly assumed to be male and sort of sort of reimagining reinventing and re sort of um contextualizing mm. death to give a kind of a new sort of perspective yeah on I, him yeah it's like on, in on, the, on her right it's like yeah. in the in the blurb in the book it says uh, mrs death is tired of her work and i'd kind of rewrite that now after now doing because you know when you publish a book people tell you what your book's about i didn't know that sure. this is my first novel but people the more <laughs> yeah, you talk do. to people the more you suddenly realize what you've done or what you were what you were saying mm. and perhaps i'd change the blurb now and say mrs death is tired of tidying up after men and after men's decisions and men's choices um Perhaps mm. and and uh, in the book, time is a character and time is a man, and uh, and and he's uh, he's really annoying, and so so I think <laughs> time is annoying. <laughs> so I think if I yeah. if if I yeah, so I think it's not so much that she's tired of a job. I think she's tired of men killing everything. Mm-hmm. And, and and on the subject of men killing everything, <laughs> um, Jenny, I mean the the character of kind of Mister Adnum. Um, in your book, I, I think that's one of the things that sort of I, I'm trying to, going to try and talk about this without giving too much away mm. uh, about about the characters of the plot. But there's this sort of there's this kind of dual sense. There's this kind of, as Selena mentioned earlier, this kind of drive towards justice over the you know it may it may take decades, it may take a century, but there is this kind of this tilting towards justice, while at the same time the kind of the you show us how the sort of the the violence that uh, men generally inflict upon uh, women and other men continues like is carried through the decades as well. So the uh, the effect of it is in the is in the immediate and on the people who experience it, but it in some way also 
spreads out further than that and sort of infects and kind of poisons the the building in which it takes place and the city in which it takes place. And until there is this sort of tending towards justice, that's going to sort of almost like it's going to continue spreading. It is a sickness and it is infecting every structure that we have on Earth, including the Earth itself. I think, um, you know, to say that somebody's book is woke is a very lazy way to not take part in a discussion you don't want to take part in. Writers write about humanity, we write about the human condition, we write about what we see in the world around us. And uh, and that's certainly a rich topical ground right now. And I have had on every single novel, uh, so far this is my third, my third fiction novel, and every time I get consistently asked, oh, you write about those people, you write about those kind of people, or you write about peripheral people, or you, why do you always write about people who are, you know, other in some way uh, and I say I am yeah. other I was always other I write about the people I find interesting actually and to me you know there is no such thing as um you know I don't I'm not peripheral to my own existence you know as a child grown up in the care system you know I didn't mm. belong to any family I didn't belong to any community I didn't know where I was from I'd never seen a, even a photograph of anybody I was related to I had no idea and uh, in every household or in every place that I went to, I was um, I was a stranger, and that was an interesting position by which to observe what people think belonging is. And I think that these books are exploring people that are deeply alive. You know, Wolf and, and Mrs. Death are deeply alive. Jessie McRae is the devil's daughter and she makes a very conscious decision to not repeat the sins of her father but to take action against him in a very brutal way. And I think that these are things that, you know, watching Donald Trump being elected in America, watching uh, what's going on in British politics at the moment, watching the elite run various different countries in ways that seem to be hauling us back in human progress means that there are a lot of people who are very, very pissed off. And to see all those women marching in, in Washington and to see different conversations going on is so powerful and so important. And the back the back feeling of the occult in Luck and Booth and, and the Devil's Daughter in particular, it comes from the very old stories that we live in a universe that in, in the Wiccan principles, they say we live in the age of the father and then we'll live in the age of the son. And until we live in the age of the mother or the daughter, humanity will not evolve. And there is a theory that we are at that, that particular point right now. And so I think it's, um, it's interesting how writers write from the heart and with truth about things. And then they go into a media that says, oh, this is woke, or this is other, or this is peripheral, or this is whatever, because you're getting the opportunity to write the truth. And most of the journalists don't. Most of the, the mediums of people who work with words don't. And, uh, and fiction is one of the very few places where they are still able to do it. And I think that is a deeply political act. And, uh, and like yourself, Selena, you know, we, we work incredibly hard at what we do. We make sacrifices to do it, both in time and security and finance and all those things. And you wouldn't do that unless there was something you really believed in. And I guess responding um, in this way and going into this unconscious, but also this very conscious way of depicting life and depicting people is um, 
it's a response because, you know, we've watched so many people die. Uh, we've watched so many people not have their story heard and, and we've not had our story mm-hmm. heard. And and this, this uh, ability of the human race to tell a narrative um, and not question the narrative or to deny others the right to question the narrative, that's where poets and, and novelists come into their own or it's where they should come into their own. Mm. Thank yeah, you. I, uh, <laughs> I just have. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, and it's sort of. Um, that was so beautifully yeah, yeah, put. Yeah, I, frankly, thank Jenny, you. thank you, thank you for articulating. <laughs> well, look, um, this is uh, all we've got time for. I mean, I feel like I could continue talking about these books and with you guys for hours. I can't wait for the time we can welcome you back uh, to Shakespeare and Company, both of you, so you can sort of light up our event space again with your, you know, whether you're reading your poetry or your fiction, it's sort of, it's really, um, just starting recording these podcasts again has really brought home to me how much I miss hearing writers read their work, how much the the bookshop feels like it, it needs the presence of uh, of writers and writers, particularly like reading at sort of uh, reading aloud and sort of filling the filling the space with their with their words. And I'm very impatient for the um, the time that we can do that again. Hopefully from the autumn, but uh, but we will see. Um, until then, of course, um, Luck and Booth and Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death are available from the Shakespeare and Company website. If people Thank want to you. order them from us, get the Shakespeare and Company stamp by your Shakespeare and Company sweatshirt as well as other um <laughs> other books and merchandise i should also say though because this will be going out in uh in the next week or so it's mid-april as we're doing this i know independent bookstores around the uk are, or particularly in england maybe i don't know if they're reopening in scotland yet but they're either reopening or reopening soon so sort of you know please if you'd like to buy it from us buy it from us but also if you'd like to support your local independent bookstore um i know that sort of you know they are grateful for your support um until next time jenny fagan selena golan thank you so much thank you you have been listening to the shakespeare and company podcast with me adam biles links to the books discussed today are available in the show notes for this episode alongside links to our online store and details about how to become a friend of shakespeare and company If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a rating wherever you listen. It can really help spread the word. Production of this podcast was by David Grove, and the intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.